All right. Wow. Voila, it is working. Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again that it is not uh, the ability of somebody to present your word, but it is the word itself that carries the power. And we also recognize that every word could be spoken in the best way humanly and nothing of eternal significance would happen. And so what we recognize is we need you. So Lord, we're asking for your spirit to work in our lives. And I'm asking as well, if I say anything not guided by your spirit, that in your mercy you would wipe it from our minds. And Lord, we ask that Christ alone would receive the glory. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Now, as we approach the word, first of all, I know some of you weren't here last night. I want to give you just a very, very brief uh, introduction to what Lord Wilding will be covering. Uh, when you stand before God one day, what we long to hear as believers is not, well done, my good and famous servant. But what we do long to hear is a very different word, and that is, well done, my good and faithful servant. In fact, when we look at the currency of heaven, what carries value, and we see Hebrews 11.6, we realize that without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So therefore, when we think about our brief life and what God is looking for from us, we recognize he's looking for really one thing, and that is faith. Faith in who he is. Faith in what he's done. But what does practical faithfulness look like? That's what we want to discuss. But we want to do it through the life of a servant of God whose name is Elisha. Now I have to pause here because I believe that as believers we need to know the difference between characters. Even this morning I was praying with some dear brothers and I love them dearly. And they're going to laugh the fact that I'm even mentioning this as an illustration. And maybe they'll know which one it is. But one of them prayed about my series on Elijah. I'm not speaking on Elijah, guys. I am not. In fact, in Scripture, we see three very beautiful parallels. We see Moses and Joshua. Moses representing the law. Joshua representing Jesus Christ. We see another beautiful parallel. Elijah representing the law in many ways. And Elisha, an incredibly clear representation of Jesus Christ. And that's who we'll be discussing. And then finally, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Christ. So with that being said, we're not, we're, this is not about Elijah. We're going to touch on Elijah a little bit this morning and Lord willing tomorrow morning. And then Elijah's out of the picture, okay? This week we're focusing in on the life of Elisha and practical faithfulness as it comes out through this life. Now, I want to give us one warning before we go to the Word of God, and that is how we look at the Word of God. I think it's very important for us to, to recognize where we fit into this, and where we fit in maybe is not where necessarily we always desire to fit in. For instance, the character in which we are in the story, we may find ourselves not so much to be Elisha at times. We might find ourselves to be one of the kings around Elisha, or we might find ourselves to be more like Gehazi, or we might find ourselves to be more like a Naaman or a servant girl. But Here's the, the basic overview I want us to consider. Back in 1532, a guy named Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus, suggested something which was very against uh, science at the time. And that was the suggestion that everything does not revolve around our Earth. Now, we recognize this suggestion is very accurate. 
that it is not that the earth is the center of the universe, but rather uh, there's a completely different focus point. Well, hang on a second. When we come to the word of God, it's not about how does God's word fit into our life. Rather, the question is, how are we to plug into God's plan? What is God doing? Let me say it a different way. Jesus doesn't want to be part of your life. He doesn't. He never did want to be part of your life. He wants all of it. He doesn't want a portion of you. But rather, what he does is he invites us into his story. He invites us into his plan. And faithfulness will not be found by trying to take God's word and incorporating elements of it into your career, into your relationships, into your marriage, but rather surrendering your entire life to the person of Jesus Christ. So with that focus in mind, Let's go to the word in complete surrender, recognizing it is the word of God. It is not to be debated. It is not to be considered, but it is. It demands a surrender. So with that said, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19, and we'll begin this journey with our friend Elisha in verse 19 of chapter 19. If you're entitling, if you're titling this message, I would go with, it started with a plow. It started with a plow. And this is going to be very significant as we take a glimpse into our own lives. Verse 19. So he, now that is Elijah, not Elisha, okay, just to confuse things here. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, that's Elisha, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he, Elijah, said to him, Elisha, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people. And they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now, the beautiful thing I, I, I find at the beginning of the story is we don't really know much about Elisha's background. And we know a few details, which we will take a brief glimpse at. But the first thing I want you to notice, and there's going to be six steps that we take in this journey from, uh, from just a journey of faithfulness. And the first thing I want you to notice is the ordinary, the ordinary life of Elisha. And this is important because oftentimes we despise the ordinary. But I want to suggest to you that, I don't even want to use the word extraordinary, but let's say what we would deem extraordinary in the life of a believer always begins in the ordinary. Now again, the extraordinary might not always be identified as extraordinary. It might seem very ordinary. But my point being is your ordinary is not to be despised. In fact, your ordinary is where God will begin working with you. And this is where we see the ordinary in the life of Elisha. He's working on a plow. But not just that. Let's take a few more details into consideration just to see how ordinary this man's life is. 
Now, if you go back a few verses, you're going to see uh, commands given by God to Elijah before he goes to throw his mantle on Elisha. And look at these details. It says back in verse 16 that he is to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah. Now, pause there. The first thing I want you to see in the ordinary is the place, the place of Elisha. He's from a place called Abel-Meholah. Now, simply put, that means dancing meadow. It sounds like a subdivision in California, doesn't it? The dancing meadow. But you need to know something about this area, Abu Mehola. In fact, uh, if you ever go to Israel, whether you go with Steve Price's group in February next year, if you go with me in October, or go with someone else, go. Go at some point. And when you go through this area of Israel, it's a very green breadbasket of the country. And I'm telling you, it is fertile It's beautiful, and things grow really well. He is from an area where it is uh, prime land to be a farmer, to have a plow, to have 12 yoke of oxen. This is his place. Now, I I don't just want to say this is his place. I want you to understand something about his ordinary. He has a generally comfortable life. There's more reason I'm going to say that, but just stick with that for right now. That's his place in the sense of geographically. What about his place in the family? Uh, I think it's interesting that we have his parental connection. He's the son of Shaphat. Now, I, I wonder if Shaphat's really the name of his father or not, because it kind of brings back the whole example of Moses. You've got Moses whose father-in-law's name is Jethro, right? Which means his excellence as a title. That's not his real name. His name was Ruel, right? And that was actually his father-in-law's name. So Shaphat, I'm not sure if it's his, fa- if it's his father's name or his father's title, because the word Shaphat means judge. But I would suggest to you that whether or not Shaphat was actually judge, Elisha's dad was actually judge or just a guy whose name is judge. I would suggest that based on his economic situation, based off his living condition, I would suggest that there was a place of prominence in that community. This is all important because we have to understand that his ordinary was not a bad setup. Some of us choose to maybe say, okay, well, God, whatever you want. Why? Because my life really stinks in the first place. So if you want to pull me out of this life, I'm open to it. I want to ask for those of you who are embedded in your career. Maybe you're a few years from retirement. Maybe you have a really comfortable setup and your promotion schedule is just, bam, looking good. I want to suggest that faithfulness is going to start in your ordinary, but be prepared for God to speak into your life even this week at Yosemite and suggest he might want to change some stuff up. I didn't say he's saying you got to leave your job. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, are you willing for him to do whatever he wants to do in your life? Are you actually willing? Maybe you've been praying about it for a while and you're just like waiting to flip that switch. I'm, there's some brothers here I'm looking at and I, I've seen, they, they flipped that switch a while back and it was not easy. It's never easy. Elisha, it's not going to be easy. But understand that faithfulness always begins in your ordinary so his place, Abu Mehola, son of Shaphat. But not just place, look at his position. Where does it say he's at when we start this? They, he found Elisha plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And where is he? He's with the 12th. 
This is significant. Again, if you are plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, we're talking like 24, right? That's a lot. Now, I heard one commentator, and whether the commentator is accurate or not, just take it. Let's pretend like he's exaggerating times three, and then let's, let's dumb it down, okay? He says to have one oxen in the day was like having a car. Okay, none of you have a 24-car garage, right? Uh, I don't think so. So let's just say that commentator has no idea what he's talking about, and he's exaggerating. All right, let's say it's an eight-car garage. Still pretty decent. I mean, like, I don't even have a garage, okay? So, like, we're talking. Now, the point being is he was pretty well off. You say, well, maybe he was just working in the field. No, he's with the 12. In other words, he's heading up the group. And you say, you don't know that. You're just saying that because a commentator said that. Uh, 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 uh. What does he do at the end of the story? He burns them. He better be in charge. <laughs> if he's not in charge, he's in trouble with a lot of people. So his place is in a good place, Abu Mehola, son of Shaphat. But his position, he's in charge. So we're not talking that his ordinary is something that we would be like, oh man, I got to get out of this. No, his ordinary is actually a very, very decent place. But there's more than just that. I want you also to see his perspective. And his perspective, you might find it humorous, but I want you to think about it in a serious way. What is he looking at every day? He's looking at the rear end of a lot of oxen. Uh, for, for a second, just picture that in your mind. Like, it, it's, it, I don't know, I, I've worked in fields, or I shouldn't say I've worked in fields, I've hung out in fields pretending to work out, at least like in Niger, like I'm like, teach me to use your plow and that kind of stuff. And, and I'll just tell you, it's just not a flattering perspective. But I want to challenge you that the circumstances, like I mentioned last night, the circumstances in which you find yourself today, even if it's 24 rear ends of oxen, the circumstances in which you find yourself today are perfectly suited for you to fully glorify God. Faithfulness will begin behind your 24 rear ends of oxen. That's where it starts. I, I want to ask you, what ordinary are you despising today? How about your ordinary relationship with your husband or wife? The smallest things, ways you can serve one another. How about the ordinary way in which you get to love your children every day? Or children, respect your parents. Respect authorities around you in society. Say there's nothing special about that. That's ordinary. Faithfulness begins with ordinary obedience. And this is exactly where we begin this amazing journey. When I say amazing, there is no, and this can be debated somewhat, but I don't think many people debate it. There's no Old Testament prophet that does more miracles than Elisha. We could say he's one of the greatest, depending on how you want to list that, and honestly, it's all about faithfulness anyway. But where did it begin? It began in the mundane. And so does your story. And so this is the first step. The first step is the ordinary. What is your ordinary? I challenge you later. Journal your ordinary. Don't make it sound pretty. Just journal the ordinary and you're going to find the starting point of this journey of faithfulness. But that's not all. Let's move on from the ordinary and let's look at the opportunity. What happens? Well, as he's plowing, we have Elijah pass by and he casts his cloak on him at the end of verse 19. He throws his cloak on Elisha, and Elisha does something which is very interesting. 
he immediately gets up and he runs after Elijah. Now, you might say, why is that so interesting? Because if the first thing was the ordinary, the second thing is the opportunity. Now, notice the opportunity always is going to come in the ordinary. This is very practical. But let me ask a different question. Are you expecting the opportunities in the ordinary? I, we just rehearsed the ordinary, right? You, got your, we all, you have your ordinary, I have my ordinary. We all have ordinaries. But are you rehearsing your ordinary, expecting the opportunities to come? Because when that mantle was thrown, you don't see Elisha wondering, what does this mantle mean? You don't see him wondering like, ah, what should I do? He gets up and he runs after Elijah. This is significant. I wonder how many, just to use the same terminology, I wonder how many mantles are thrown on us daily from the perspective of opportunities for faithfulness. And we throw that mantle off like, ugh, that's in the way. That's ruining my ordinary. That's getting in the way of me plowing and making the money I want to make. That's getting in the way of my comfort zone. And we throw off mantles. Maybe it's because we're not prepared for the opportunities that God wants to give us. Let me ask you today. Let's not make it tomorrow. Let's not make it when you go home. How about right here at Yosemite? Are you going to encounter souls? Yeah, that's going to be ordinary. Ordinary life at Yosemite. Have you rehearsed opportunities? Are you expecting opportunities to come for the glory of God and for faithfulness? I guarantee every single one of us are going to have multiple opportunities for faithfulness today in the opportunities of the ordinary. But if you're not expecting them, chances are you're going to miss them completely. And it's going to happen all throughout your day and your life. Faithfulness is not some kind of obscure thing. Faithfulness is simply responding to the Holy Spirit moment by moment. But if we're listening to other voices, why are we going to hear the Spirit's voice? We'll be so distracted by our own agenda that when these opportunities arise, our ordinary, we'll simply capture our attention. And this is what we see here. You know, I... I for whatever reason, a, a song from Beauty and the Beast comes to my mind at this point. Um, if you remember, it's a well-known song, but there's a little portion in the middle that I'm thinking of. It's a song, Be Our Guest. And uh, Lumiere, I think it's Lumiere that sings it. Um, and anyway, you don't need to know the story to, to get the point that I'm making. So if you're like, I don't know what you're about to hit on here, uh, just don't worry, just listen. Uh, Lumiere goes into this whole thing about how life is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. A uh, servant who's got no one to wait upon. And then he goes back, oh, the good old days when we were useful. Suddenly those good old days are gone. For 10 years we've been rusting, needing so much more than dusty, needing exercise, a chance to use our skills. But most days we just lay around the castle getting flabby, fat, and lazy. And then you walked in and oops a daisy, it's a guest. What's the point? The point is that Lumiere, Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts and all the others were created to serve. And when they were not serving, they were empty. They were feeling useless. And let me tell you that the ordinary is not the problem. The problem is we fail to see the opportunities in the ordinary. God calls us to more than mere survival. God calls us to more than merely making it through our day. God calls us to plug into what he's up to, the eternity in the moments. And remember, and I'll keep reminding you, your circumstances today 
are perfectly suited for you to fully glorify God in faithfulness. Circumstances aren't the problem. Problem is our perspective. And so with that being said, we see that he's got ordinary, but he's also got these opportunities arising in the ordinary. But go on. What's his response to this? As he passes, as Elijah passes by, casts his cloak on him. It says in verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. The third thing is this. Look at the obedience that takes place. And I love this obedience. It says he ran after Elijah. He didn't have to think twice about it. And this is the thing about obedience. Oh, please get this in your mind. If the word of God says something about truth, about obedience, about what God wants from you, don't pray about it. Praying about what God has already said is called disobedience. There are many times in scripture, God says, stop praying. And we love quoting these verses too. It's almost funny sometimes Christians' favorite verses like Exodus 14, 14. Like, stand still. That's what Moses is telling the people. And God's like, why are you standing still? In the very next verse, just keep reading, verse 15. He's like, move forward. Like, I know, stand still. God's going to save you. Well, yes, in a sense, they got to stand still. But the very next verse, God's like, don't stand still. He's like, I've already told you what to do. Think about Joshua. Joshua's praying in, uh, after Achan takes the, the forbidden items. And, and God's like, stop praying. Get up and deal with sin in your camp. How about in, uh, in, in Matthew 5? When, when, uh, when you come to the altar bringing your gift, but your brother's got something against you, first go and be reconciled. There are times in our life when there's obedience that needs to take place, not conversation. And what happens here? The ordinary happens. And in the ordinary, an opportunity arises. But because Elisha had already rehearsed these opportunities in the ordinary, Obedience was the result. Let me ask you, as a, as, a, as a child to my parents, do I ever pray about respect? No, I don't need to pray about respecting my parents, about honoring my parents. The natural response in Christ as guided by the Spirit is automatically they get respect 100% of the time. I don't need to think about that. I don't have to say, are they worthy of my respect? No, God told me to honor them. Uh, How about my wife? Do I need to pray about loving my wife as Christ loved the church? No, no, there's no consideration. When I choose not to do it, I am directly disobeying the word of God. I don't need to pray about that. It's a command. You see, when the opportunity in my ordinary comes to love my wife, obedience needs to be the result, period. I need to run after obedience. Let me ask you, are you running after obedience? Are you looking for the heart of God? Do you say like the psalmist, I delight in your word? Oh, I just want to taste more of it. In the middle of the night, I'm just up wanting to eat it. I'm like, I can't get enough of God's heart. Why? It's not commandments. It's the heart of God revealed. And I want to run after the heart of God. Obedience is to be the response to the opportunities that arise in your ordinary. But then we see another step of this journey. As we go down, he says this very interesting thing, which might actually seem like a bit of disobedience happening, but I want to clarify what's, what's going on. Look at the end of verse 20. He says to Elijah, 
let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah says back to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? This is interesting. It almost seems like he's having second thoughts. In fact, uh, if you go to Luke chapter 9, verses 61 and 62, you find a very interesting phrase happen there, right? This one individual, there are three different individuals talking to Jesus, and this one says, let me go and bid farewell to my parents. And, and Jesus brings up a plow, which is interesting because we have a plow here too, right? He brings up a plow and he says that he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of, kingdom of God. Very interesting connection. But let me make a clear distinction. Elisha is not so much going back to compromise. Elisha is going back to cut off. When I say cut off, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way to his family. I'm saying what Elisha's doing is he wants to make sure that there's nothing that's going to keep him from following. That's going to be very important. When we end this little message, there's a very, very powerful realization that's going to hit us all. And, and let me go and make a statement. It's not melodramatic either. It's true. When we leave this place after Warren speaks, none of you are going to wonder why are there not more Elishas. We're all going to know why there's going to be one key detail in Elisha's life in this message. And you're all going to be like, oh yeah, that's why I'm not Elisha. It's powerful. And yet we all have the opportunity. Hang on for it. So Elisha goes back. And the fourth thing is this, the outright. When you obey, let your obedience be outright. Why do I say it? Well, he wanted to make sure it was not vague in any regard. With his family, how was he outright? He made a public Au revoir, a public goodbye to his family, right? I mean, this was bold, straightforward. He's saying, I'm gone. I'm following obedience. And it requires a cutting off of this connection, per se. But he wasn't just outright with his family. He was outright with his finances. Oh, let me just say a little side note on finances here. And I'm not speaking on finances, but I want to I say this because I think it's important. Can people look at your financial life and clearly tell what your priority in life is? I think Christians so often look so much like the world, people can't even tell. All right, let me go on a little rabbit. It's not a rabbit trail, but I'm going to call it a rabbit trail for about 45 seconds. Please listen carefully. These 45 seconds are so important. As a church, and I'm not saying this towards you, I say it in so much, drenched in love. As a church, we don't care about the lost. We don't. Evangelical Christians... We give about 2% of our money, first of all, to church-related causes. Out of that 2%, 6% go to so-called missions, which is reaching souls outside the church. Now, 40% of our world has yet to hear of Jesus Christ. 40%. Out of that 6% that go to missions, 1% of that 6%. Let me give you an idea. For every $100,000 you make, $1, one, will go to reaching 40% of the world that's never heard of Christ. One. One. Do we care? No, we don't care. Elisha was outright. He goes and burns the oxen, burns the yokes. Why? Everybody knew my investment is in eternity. The world does not know that of us as Christians. Why? Because we live in our paneled houses, as the minor prophets speak of. Well, God's house, which our souls lie in ruins. My brothers and my sisters, can I ask you a question? And I'm really only asking myself. I'm thinking of none of you. I'm thinking of Nate Bramson and only Nate Bramson with this question. 
do my finances point people to the value of Jesus Christ? Oh, hang on a second. <laughs> Let me correct that. My finances do point people to the value of Jesus Christ. The only question is, what's the value of Christ? Am I the priority? Or is the mission of Christ my priority? May God wake us up. He was outright with his family. He was outright with his finances. He was also outright with his future, wasn't he? He's like, I'm not, I'm not going back to the plow. I mean, my plows are a bunch of firewood now. And all your stomachs are full from the, 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 the creatures I used to use. This is a one-way journey. And so the fifth thing is this. There's an offering. Uh, I'll say this very clearly. If you want to obey God in the ordinary with the opportunities that arise and you want to be outright about it, there's going to be cost. May we never assume that following Jesus Christ is without cost. I mean, after all, when Jesus Christ spoke to the disciples, it wasn't just the 12, by the way, the disciples as a whole. What did he say? If any man, that, that, that excludes no one, right? If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. That means you're not going on vacation, you're on your way to die. Take up his cross and follow me. This is beautiful, but it's also all-consuming. There's a cost. You want to follow Christ? You truly want to follow Christ? Please understand, Jesus masks nothing. It requires everything. But he invites you. He wants you. And there's this outright. Maybe you remember a, a, a guy, I was going to call him a gentleman, and that was way too kind. A guy named Hernan Cortez. I am not using this illustration in a positive way, okay? It was uh, a conqueror, came to, I think, a uh, territory where, like, Mexico is today. I'm pretty sure my history might be off. You can read it. I believe it was 1519. Um, and he comes, and basically the odds of him conquering the area he wanted to conquer were, like, 1 in 7,000. He had uh, a very few number of soldiers, like 500-something soldiers, about 110 sailors, I think 11 ships, and then... He was going up against 5 million people. The chances of winning were very slim. But as soon as they landed those ships on shore, the first thing Hernan Cortez commanded was not go fight the enemy. The first thing he said was, burn the ships. Why do you think Hernan Cortez said burn the ships? Because he wanted to make sure those 500-something soldiers against 5 million people were not going to retreat. He wanted them to know, you've got nowhere to go but forward. When you choose to follow Christ, there's no plan B. The finish line is his face. Faithfulness. And faithfulness does not depend on the circumstances being good or bad. Faithfulness depends on our response to the circumstances God has given us today. Be encouraged. But are you going to be outright? And are you going to offer yourself as that living sacrifice, that living, uh, yeah, the living sacrifice, as, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 so clearly tell us. But we're getting very short on time, so I want to get to this closure because the closure brings it all together. In fact, I have to say that this changed my life, and I'm, I am, again, I'm not being dramatic. When I come to verse 21, Something inside me gets convicted every single time. Because there's something in Elisha's life that is so different from our culture. And for a second, I'm going to pick on American culture, okay? And I'm only picking on American culture because we are in the United States of America. 
If I was back in the land I was born in in Senegal, we would speak of Senegalese culture. But you will see that there is something embedded into our culture and our perception where even as believers, not only is it difficult for us to imitate Elisha, but we actually discourage others from it too. And you'll see exactly what I mean in a second. We live in a very fast-paced culture, do we not? Um, I've got a very dear friend here. Who, uh, who will appreciate this illustration. I used to also be a Disney employee, and he works with Disney. And, you know, when you go to Disney, you can buy the pass to get in the park, but then there's something else that you can sign up and get free, a certain amount of free ones each day, but you can also pay more to skip the lines. Fast pass, and then there's other versions where basically you're taken around the park. The point being is we want things quickly, don't we? Back when I was a kid, there was something called a crock pot. Now there's an Instapot. Why? Because the crockpot wasn't bad. Uh, back when I was like, you know, in my, in my early 30s, now I'm 35, Amazon had two-day delivery. Now it has same day. No, no, no. It went to next day. Now we're on same day. Okay, get with it. Like, you are so... <laughs> Why? Next day wasn't good enough. I need it today. We over and over want things now. It used to be that we courted. Then we started to date. Why? Because uh, we need a little bit faster. Now we got Tinder and it's swiping. I hope none of us here do. But you get my point. We have a world that wants everything right now. What does verse 21 say? It says that Elisha, he left everything. And he went and assisted Elijah. You might think the sixth point is going to be something really exciting. The sixth point is going to sound the most boring of them all. He went from the outright to the offering. And number six is this. He went to obscurity. It says he went and assisted Elijah. Okay, hang on a second. Hang on. We've got to get this. Do you realize that in 2 Kings chapter 3, we're told what that meant. To assist Elijah meant he washed the hands of Elijah. Wash his hands. Now, I'm sure he did other things other than wash his hands. It's not like, uh, like Elijah had that many sanitation issues on his, on his hands. The point being is that Elijah was his master. The point being is he humbly served him, doing the most mundane, the most disrespected, tasks okay but wait wait wait. you say okay well any of us can do that for a certain amount of time i mean like an internship is like three months right so if you're an intern you're kind of like getting the coffee right oh hang on a second have you ever noticed that in first kings chapter 20 elisha's name is not there have you ever noticed in first kings chapter 21 elisha's name is not there have you ever noticed in first kings 22 elisha's name is not there have you ever noticed in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elisha's name is not there? Do you know how many years in Scripture Elisha is not mentioned after this verse? Based on the kings, between 14 to 18 years, Elisha goes into obscurity. Not one time is he ever mentioned. He's just serving Elijah. Why do I bring that up? This is why we don't have Elisha's. Because when God calls us out of our ordinary, when God calls us out of our comfort zone, he calls us into obscurity oftentimes. 
In other words, he calls us from something the world says, man, that's great. And then they say, whoa, uh, you obviously miss God's call because that's not so great. No one's noticing what you're doing. No one's seeing the hours in your prayer closet. No one's seeing the liquidations of your assets for the sake of eternity. No one's seeing the, the love you're showing to those that can never reciprocate. God does not call you to fame. In fact, I would suggest God does call you in many ways to obscurity. He calls you to serve where you'll never be noticed. I believe the reason we don't see many Elishas is exactly this. If we go and do something and after a few years or after a few months, we don't see the benefits of it, what do we do? We quit. Why? Because we're American. And that wasn't working. Guys, we're, we're not American. We're aliens, actually, and strangers in this world. You've been called to one thing, and when you stand before God, only one thing is evaluated, and that one thing that's evaluated is this. Were you faithful in the circumstances in which God gave you in the ordinary, the opportunities of the ordinary, obedience in the opportunities of the ordinary that require an outright response and that without doubt require great offering. You see, it all started with a plow. And what happened? Elisha went from boss to butler. We would say we just went backwards. And why is that? Because we oftentimes look at things through earthly eyes. I want to challenge myself and each one of us. God does call us to greatness. But not greatness in the eyes of anybody here. Greatness in the light of eternity. In the light of what he's doing. He invites us into his plan. There's a song, a Southern Gospel song. I'm not sure who wrote it, um, but Larry Ford is the one that I, I listened to singing it. And it goes, little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. And Steve Green sings another song that says, Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way and may the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And may the lives we live inspire them to obey. Maybe you're discouraged this morning because you feel like what you're doing is not great. Maybe you're a mom that feels like your role is so hidden. There is no greater calling than faithfulness in what you're doing. Maybe you're older and the prayer closet is your primary dwelling place. Let me say you have the greatest calling. Thank God for you. It's not about who sees and it's not about who here approves. But it's all about faithfulness in the circumstances with which you've been entrusted. So look at your ordinary. Look for the opportunities and decide beforehand that when that mantle lands on your shoulders, you're off and running, even if it means 18 years of being deemed a failure. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you don't call us to something we can't do. 
You call us to what you invite us into, and that's through your strength, and that's faithfulness. Faithfulness to your call. Faithfulness to obedience to your word. Thank you that we have the privilege, the privilege of walking with an almighty God, a God who loves us more than we love ourselves. And Lord, I just pray today that you would encourage your body and just remind them that the circumstances they find themselves in today are perfectly suited for them to fully glorify God. Thank you for your goodness. And thank you that it's only through your strength that we can be faithful. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord, our Savior, and our very soon coming bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen.